Wow, I have a lot today. So, God help me. Welcome. Um, really glad you're here. This is our our second week of this this two part series that I'm doing on eternity's biggest game. The idea that even though we realized and we decided last week that salvation is not a game and it's a very serious thing, we realized that there are two sides. There's, we're very clearly called to go and share our love of Jesus with others. And increasingly it becomes obviously obvious that we live in a world where a ready defense for what we believe is necessary. So I want to remind us that as we talk about these things in, in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter in the sixth verse, we're told that we can plant seeds and we can water, but it's God that does the growing. So we can relax when we, can, when we, when we, when we, we face people and, and come into contact with people and share our love of Jesus with people. We can relax that we don't have all the answers. We can relax that we don't have that perfect verse or the perfect thing to say. But I want to share today some of those things about having a ready defense. And one of the biggest questions of all time is this question of, what is it in Latin? Quid est veritas? It's what is truth? And it is a question that has been asked for millennia, great writers and artists and poets have wrestled with that question. Theologians and philosophers have wrestled with that question. And most famously, it was asked to Jesus Christ by Pontius Pilate. Jesus, what is truth? Now, I know that the greats have wrestled with this question, but, but so have the lowly, because this is something that I've wrestled with. And I remember when I was young, there was a story about a group of blind men that come across an elephant. And one, one, one of the, the blind men grabs a hold of its trunk and says, oh, an elephant is is spindly and, and, and tubular and flexible. A, a, an elephant is much like a snake. Another one had a hold of its trunk or, or of its, its leg and said, no, an elephant is a lot like a, a, a giant tree trunk. Yet another one had a hold of its ear and said, no, an elephant is, is thin and sort of floppy. It's like a giant leaf. So the, tr- so the, the meaning of this story is They're trying to tell you that all religions see a part of God. But none of them see the whole truth. But see, there's there's a fatal error in this story. What it is, is it assumes that the person telling the story knows what an elephant actually looks like. The story assumes that there is absolute truth. Why? Because I can't tell you about an elephant, and you don't understand what an elephant is, unless I'm saying that I know what an elephant is. So as I wrestled with this question of what is truth, early on, I started, and I was an awkward kid. I mean, you got got to imagine me just 
awkward and unpopular. I mean, I was so unpopular that one of my relatives had to get a date for my eighth grade formal. I married her, but, but that's how unpopular it was. I couldn't get a date, right? So I would sit in my room at night, and I'm talking 14, 15, 16. My black light posters, my black light. And I would think about nothing. Uh, and I don't mean I would think about nothing. I mean, I would think about nothing, the concept of nothingness. And I would think, what is nothing? How can something come from nothing? Is there something beyond this world? Is there something beyond what I, I see in front of me? And as I wrestled with this idea of nothing, because I was really trying to decide, is there a God? Because that's the ultimate question. So as I wrestled with the idea of nothing, I said, well, okay, so is there space? No, space is something. Was it darkness? No, darkness is something. And it came to the conclusion that the human mind can't grasp the concept of nothingness because a concept is something. So I realized that since I can't understand nothing, nothing doesn't come, something doesn't come from nothing, there must be something behind this something. So this was my, my first intellectual ascent to a creator. And I said, okay, I believe it. There's a creator. There must be an original cause. And as I searched through all the world religions and, and tried to find the answer, and, and I looked at all of them, my the you know Buddhism and Hinduism and Eastern philosophy, and that's very much the camp that my mom fell in. But I found them all empty. And I came to a point where I realized this this Christian faith that that many of my friends sort of mock and say are old fashioned and and kind of weird. Maybe I need to look at this. And I realized that if there was a God who created everything, the physical world being space and time, that God would very clearly have to be outside of space and time because a creation cannot create itself. So I realized, well, what's the best way for that God outside of space and time to communicate with his creation that's very much inside of space and time. And I realized the God-man, Jesus Christ, fit that bill perfectly. And then I realized, so if God wanted to share his word and his will through entering into his creation as the God-man, Jesus Christ, how would he best leave that will and his purpose and his directions for future generations, and I realized the Bible fits that perfectly. I want to I look at today the area of apologetics. And apologetics is, comes, from the, comes from the Greek, and it doesn't mean I'm really sorry I'm a Christian. That's not what apologetics means. Apologetics is have a ready defense. We see it in, in Peter. It's somewhere I know it is. I've mislabeled my... 1 Peter 3... I'll start with verse 13. 
It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, is your heart, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a ready defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for your hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all you are and all you've done. Thank you for opening our hearts and our minds, God, to, to, to your reality that you do exist. Thank you, God, that you have called us to be your people. And thank you that we can call you our God. We love you, Lord, and we just pray that you would give me the words today that you want your people to hear. Let, let my words not be mine, but yours, God. And I pray that I would be transparent and people would see through me and see you. God, it's for your glory. Love you, God, so much. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus, in your precious name that I pray. Amen. So, and I'm going to confess that the technology is making me a little, a little, nah. so if I don't do it perfectly, forgive me. If I'm on the wrong slide, I'm on the wrong slide. So, I want to look at this verse, and a lot of people look at verse 15, and they look at the last half, How, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, right? So, so this, is our, this is our permission to go out. This is our permission to go out and practice ap- apologetics. I can go out. I have permission to go out, but they forget the first part. In your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. So in your hearts... Honor Christ as holy. So when we go into this defense, we bring Christ with us. See, we're not going in to win a debate. We're going in to make disciples. That should always be our goal. Not to win, because winning is easy. I I was talking to Wayne earlier, and he told me about a friend of his that said, I can beat anybody up in a debate, but that doesn't mean anything until they know how much I love them, how much I care for them. So we're not looking to win. We're looking to honor Christ and share Jesus with other people and make disciples. The second thing is, when when we go into this area of apologetics, we can't be neutral. I I can't go into a a debate or a discussion with somebody and say, hey, you know, I'm not really sure. You don't believe in God. I I do. Maybe you're right. Let's let's try to convince each other. You can't do that. And and I'll talk about why we can't do that. There, There are obvious very spiritual reasons you can't do that. There are also very functional reasons you can't do that. So we never go in neutral. Now, I, I want to say that the field of apologetics is really deep, and we don't have any time to cover even an iota of it. I mean, there's the cosmological argument, teleological, ontological, the, the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument from induction, Right? There, there are 
every field of science, every field of philosophy, every field of thought that there is, there is an apologetic for it. I want to share just three. One is simple. And quite honestly, kind of pedestrian, a little sophomoric maybe. It, it's, it's not one you're going to run into a lot these days, but you might hear it in high school or maybe undergraduate um, college years. But it's this, the, the, the books of the Bible, and, and when I was thinking about this, when I was praying about this, I was saying there are really books that have influenced my thought on apologetics and have sort of spurred me on to learn more about apologetics. And the first one is this. You guys remember that? What a great opportunity to, to share Jesus Christ with other people because it was a huge book, it was a huge movie, and it gave us as Christians an opportunity to talk to people. And, and the, the claim here, the claim here that, that the author makes is that the Bible is not what you think it is. Jesus wasn't who you thought it was. And, and what he says, in, and remember in, in Revelation 22, it says, warning to anybody that adds to this book or takes away. Well, the author is very much saying that there was a lot taken away from the book, a lot that wasn't added. And, and one of, the, one of the, the biggest claims was that Constantine partnered with the early church to suppress a lot of Gnostic writings and a lot of writings that didn't make it into the Bible because they wanted it to sort of be the way they wanted it. So they suppressed a lot of the writings. Well, if you see the man that's looking down at them, this is Irenaeus of Lyons. And as early as 150 AD, about 100 years before the Gnostic writings, and about 200 years before Constantine, said this. He said, we have four Gospels and four Gospels alone. The writing of the apostle and disciples speak the truth that we believe. That's the truth. This is, this is 200 years before Constantine. Arrhenius of Lyons basically canonized what we have canonized now. So what are some of the other claims in the book? Is the Bible today what was originally written down? Let's look at that. So I want to I explain this, this area of textual criticism. It's this idea that I write a document, a letter. I send it to Wayne. Wayne thinks, this is pretty cool. I want to share this with Ross. So Ross makes a copy. And Ross says, hey, this, this is good stuff. I, I want to share it with Wayne Sr. So he, he sends a copy to Wayne Sr. Okay, now, hundreds of years have gone by. My copy, original copy, is, is deteriorated. Wayne wrote his on a Mac, and his word for Mac expired, and he got a new PC and didn't transfer, so it's gone. Right, so, so the, the ones that are left are much long, long time after I wrote my original letter. And that's what textual criticism is. And it looks at this. And let's compare the Bible to other works. So if you look at the New Testament, the number of, of 
manuscripts, about 25,000. 5,500 complete New Testaments. If you compare that with the Iliad, there's 643, Aristotle 49, Tacitus 20, and Livy, which is what a lot of universities use to teach history. There's only 20 of those. But there's more. So the earliest copy was 400 BC for Homer, and that's 500 years after it was originally written. For Aristotle, 1,400 years between the time he originally wrote it to the earliest manuscript that we have. What about the New Testament? 25,000 copies within, and some of them within 25 years of their original writing. So in the area of textual criticism, that's why I say you won't get this much other than in places like high school and maybe early on in, in undergraduates, because scholars will say that, yes, absolutely, the New Testament is by far and, and beyond the, the most authentic, authenticated, has the most integrity of all literature of antiquity. So there's, a more, there's another question. What if there were no manuscripts? What if there were none of these manuscripts existed of the original writings, the, the copy of the copy of the copy? Well, what if there were no Bibles? What if we didn't have the Bible that we have today? Well, we'd still have something. Because within 250 years of Christ, every verse except for 11 verses in the entire New Testament had been written down by the early Christians. So that's 86,429 <laughs> quotes. And I wrote wow because I thought, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> so... Even if we didn't have the Bible, even if there were no extant manuscripts, we'd still have all the verses but 11 that are in the New Testament. So the, the author of the Da Vinci Code is a little off base. So what about the second question that he raises? What, was a, what originally written down, was that true? Well, we know a lot of things. We know what the first century was like. And we know that if, if man had written the New Testament, in a first century Palestinian Jew never would have written a woman finding the empty tomb. Why? Because in that day, in that area, women were considered unreliable. You, they, couldn't, they couldn't testify in court. So if man had written it, they certainly would have had someone noble and respected find it. If man had written it, would Peter, one of the leaders of the church, said, yeah, go ahead and put that part in there about me denying Christ. Go ahead. That's okay. Put it in there. Would James said, yeah, you know, go ahead, put that part in there about my family not really getting Jesus at first. That's okay. And would they have presented a Messiah that was completely contrary to what everyone was expecting? Or what if they made him a great warrior? But they didn't. They, they made him the suffering servant that he was prophesied to be. And, and probably the, the greatest evidence is this, that you have just a gangly group of guys that are just, wow, this, 
Jesus is gone. They've crucified him. Let's go to the upper room and let's figure out what we're going to do. What are you going to do? I'm going to go back to fishing. I don't know what you're going to do, but I want to just disappear into the... And then they meet the resurrected Jesus. And each one of them, except for one, ends up executed. The one that's not executed ends up in exile, essentially imprisoned in exile. So a lot of people will say, well, you know, a, a, a lot of people will die for something they believe to be true. I agree with that. But if the disciples had moved the body and the tomb wasn't really empty, they would have had to die for something they knew to be false. So I very much think, <laughs> matter of fact, I believe, I know, there's sufficient evidence to prove that what was originally written down was true. So I want to move on now to another area. And, and this is something that I want to read Romans For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And it talks about God's wrath on unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So scripture tells us that we can see creation all around us. It is plain to us. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Unapologetus, without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, gave thanks, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping. I want to talk about this area that, that's a little more intricate, a little more nuanced, and it's this area of scientism. And scientism is this idea that science somehow disproves God. Now, two things up front. I just want to say, if you meet, and I've ran into people that say, I believe in science. And I always ask them the question, what science do you believe in? Science. Okay, well, what kind of, what, what do you mean? You know, biology, oceanography, cosmo, cosmology, that kind of science. Oh, those are fields of study. What, what, the, the bigger branches of science, you, so you believe in the physical science and the natural sciences. Those are sort of the, the two biggies, right? Yeah, those. So I just want to say, if, if you're using a methodology, first of all, science is not a thing. It is a, a methodology. And if you're using a methodology that is designed to give evidence and explain things in the physical world and the natural world, how do you expect it to explain anything in the supernatural or the metaphysical world? Honestly, and I thought about this, it's, it's a lot like believing in mathematics to do your English homework. I mean, they're just different things. And, and I think that's where the rub is, is that there is no way that science will ever disprove God. 
And they'll twist and they'll turn and they'll say, well, maybe those multiverses and string theory and all these other things to get around it. But the truth is this. Science is not designed to explain or disprove or prove God. It is a methodology that explains the physical world around us, and that's it. So the second thing before I get into scientism is Christians, when they talk about science, they always want to go to evolution. And, and the atheists like it when we go to evolution because, and I'll tell you why, because what I like to call the, the great conflation. What, what, what evolutionists have done, what naturalists do, is they, 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 they mix microevolution and macroevolution. So when you say, I don't believe in evolution, if you say that, they say, really? Everybody believes in evolution. How can you not believe in evolution? Right? So in the greatest lies, there's always a bit of truth. So, absolutely. A finch with a longer beak in a drought that can get more food, that can reach deeper into the rocks and the crevices, is going to get more food and is going to survive when the finches with the shorter beaks aren't going to be able to get the food. They're going to die off. And guess what their offspring are going to look like? They're going to have longer beaks. You don't believe in that? Wow. You are just out there. That's the great conflation, right? Because they're talking about microevolution as a fact, as truth, everybody can see it. But that's not what macroevolution does. That's not what they want to use evolution for. What they want to use evolution for is to say that everything you see around us is the result of time and chance acting on matter. So I say, I don't start with evolution. Because until you answer the really big question, why is there something rather than nothing? You can talk about time and chance acting on matter, unguided, undirected, time and chance acting on matter. But until you ex answer, why is there something rather than nothing, you haven't accounted for time or matter, and all you're left with is chance. That's kind of a fool's gamble. So how do they answer this question? They answer it this way. And, and I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to the big gun, the, the, the man that holds the chair that, that Isaac Newton once held, the arguably smartest man in the world, Stephen Hawking, in his book, The Grand Design. He writes this. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. He says that we, everything is the product of quantum fluctuations in the very early universe. So when I read this, is my face shaken? Do I say, oh my gosh. Wow, when I was 15 and wrestling with the idea of nothing, I, I totally missed that. No. When I first read it, I thought, gravity, early universe, that doesn't sound like Nothing at all. That sounds like something. I mean, if, if there's nothing, what is gravity actually going to act on to produce something? I, okay, and when I, was, when I first came across this, I'm not that smart. And I thought, okay, so maybe I'm missing something. Let me go to somebody really smart. And I, and I did all this research, and there are a lot of big-brained people out there that early on read this book and said, wait a minute. That's completely wrong. You're talking about something, not nothing. Uh, one of the 
premier mathematicians, um, John Lennox, he, he wrote a rebuttal to this book. If, he's a professor at Oxford, and he's a quirky guy. I was telling my wife that you know most men have heroes that wear helmets and have numbers on their back, and like my heroes are like these little awkward, goofy English professors. And, and, and he said, for years, and he's a quirky guy, and he says, for years, mathematicians have been trying to explain that x equals y. Apparently, it takes the smartest man in the world to tell us that x equals x. Right? That's a math joke. If you're a mathematician, you're probably laughing really, really a lot inside. He's saying you get x because you already have x, and that makes no sense. The, the Guardian magazine called John Lennox, and they said, you know, we know that you've, you've written a rebuttal to Stephen Hawking's book, and he just in an interview said that, that heaven is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Would you like to respond? And John Lennox said, yes, I would like to respond. Atheism is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the light. So, he's a great guy. If you get a chance to read his book, it's called, it's called Stephen Hawking and God. It's, sm- it's a small read, but it's, it's very powerful. So, with this information, what do we do? One, one of the arguments here is the argument from induction. That they're talking science, stuff you can measure, stuff that you need predictable things in nature to measure, but yet they say that everything is random. If it's random, how are you going to measure it? What if it's not not the same in five minutes? To To do science, to do math, to use logic or reason, you need a nature that is predictable. And, and something from nothing doesn't give you that. There are, there are five clues that Timothy Keller in his book Reason for God gives for, for the evidence of God. And he says, one is the beginning, a mysterious bang, big bang, the creation, whatever you want to call it. Now, the atheist can say, yeah, the universe had a beginning, but that doesn't prove God. The second clue is fine-tuning of the universe. That the one in a trillion, trillion, trillion odds that the universe would be in just such a way that we could live here and live in it and things would exist. And the atheist would say, yeah, okay, there's fine-tuning. and got to grant you that, but that doesn't prove God. And then the third clue is the regularity of nature. Things are predictable. We can expect the sun will rise tomorrow. We can expect that, that our bodies will continue to need oxygen and, and not nitrogen to live. The atheist can say, okay, yes, the, the nature is predictable. doesn't prove God. And then there's the fourth clue, love and beauty. And this sense that we have that there is a sense of purpose, that we matter, that we have value. And the atheist responds to this by saying, yes, but that's just evolutionary design, designed to make you better survive, 
and to propagate your, your, your species. But the fifth clue is, is that none of that makes any sense because if we're time and chance acting on matter, how could we possibly trust any of our cognitive faculties? Tim Keller sums it up this way. Though the secular view of the world is rationally possible, it doesn't make as much sense of all these things as the view that God exists. That's why we call them clues. The theory that there is a God who made the world accounts for the evidence we see better than the theory that there is no God. Those who argue against the existence of God go right on using induction, language, they continue to using their cognitive faculties, all of which make far more sense in a universe in which a God has created and supports them all by his power. So see, what, what Keller is saying is that all the things that the atheist, that the naturalist, that the materialist holds on to make more sense in a Christian worldview. There's a game called X Marks the Spot, and it's this. It's the atheist stands here and says, everything is random, everything is meaningless, everything is purposeless. Then he steps over here. Why, why are we oppressing these people? Why, why are people being mean to me? Why, why are you lying to me? Why would, did you do that injustice? And they step over here and they say, but everything is random and unguided and meaningless, and we are just carbon-based sacks of protoplasm fizzing away in our brains. You see, you see what I'm saying? So they go back and forth. They want to say everything is random, everything is meaningless, everything is just time and chance acting on matter, but then they say, but I see value in people. I see value in the world. I see value in myself. I love, I think, I have logic, and things matter. And that's the God design, right? It's that thing that God has put in us that really lets us know that there is a God. So I want to move on now to the, the book that has most impacted my thoughts on apologetics. The Bible. So here, here's the truth. The, the Bible is very clear on, on how best to do apologetics go out and serve. Let people see that we love them. Let the community around us see that we care about them. Because I can sit here and say that the, the naturalist, the materialist is, lives inconsistently, right? Stand here and then stand here. But I can do the same thing. I can say people have value and dignity and everyone is the, the imago Dei, the image of God. And then I can jump over here and not give a cred and say, ah, I don't want to help them. I don't want to help the homeless. I don't, I don't want to give money to this. Oh, my gosh. But everybody's valuable, and God loves them, and we're called to go out and serve. But it's Saturday, and they always need something. But people matter, right? So Christians can play that X marks the spot game, too. So... The greatest apologetic is letting people know you love them. Being, being visible in your community. Going out to the farthest reaches of the earth. Sharing the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And doing it in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your schools, in your work. I always think about Isaiah 58. 
is, is one of my favorite passages where, where the people are saying, why, God, we do all this sacrifice, all this stuff? And God said, is this not the, the fast that I have chosen? That, that you would bring the wanderer into your home, that you would feed the hungry, that you would, you would clothe the naked, right? And, and Jesus in Matthew 25, I, I always picture this, what, what when he, I, I picture this in my head, and when, when the king says, I was hungry, and you brought me food. I was thirsty, and you brought me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you, you came to visit me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And, and I picture the righteous saying, when can we do those things? We don't remember. You in prison, may it never be so. You sick, no. You naked, may it never be so. You're, you're our king. And his response, whatever you do, for the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. So, so that's the greatest apologetic. When we go out, when we serve our, our, our neighbors, the, the least of these among us, the homeless, the helpless, the hurting, the lonely, when we go out and do that, then people see that, and they will know that you are a disciple by your love. That's the best apologetic. You can know all the science, and, and I can. I can talk about the minutiae of the flagellum for hours. And you can know all the, the textual stuff and how many copies of this and how long, and you can know cosmology and, and cos, cosmetology, for all that matters, <laughs> right? You can know all this stuff. But, man, if people don't know you love them, there's an old expression, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's true. And that is the greatest apologetic that the, that the church has, ever has had, and as we go out, Peter's right. You know, you're going to suffer. But if you're suffering for Jesus, for the cause of Christ, count it all joy. When we go on missions, when, when we go to, to Africa, Croatia, Indonesia, Man, we are showing the love of Jesus Christ. We are being very tangible hands and feet of Jesus here on earth. When we share our, our, our faith with others, we are being that mouth that shares the love of Jesus Christ with others. I want to end with, with a story about two women that went on a mission trip to a place in Africa where there was a community that were all had, they've been segregated because they had some sort of disease. They, they call it leprosy. I don't know what it really is. But the women went in there into a place that no one else goes, that the people in the community weren't allowed to leave, and they loved them. And they shared food with them, and they shared life with them, and they bandaged their wounds, and they sacrificed for them, and they, they gave for them, and they loved them, and they they. T taught their children for them and they respected them and they saw the value and what they said was when you love people when you sacrifice for others and they see your love for them there won't be a person in that community that won't be willing to listen to you tell them about your Jesus and that is a strong apologetic so 
the decision is ours. Are we going to be internally inconsistent and stand here and say people have value? The sanctity of life from conception to grave, people matter. We are made in the image of God. Or are we going to stand over here and say, you go to church on Sunday, what more do I need to do? Because that's inconsistent with what we say we believe. And as we go out and challenge the non-believer and the naturalist and the materialist on their worldviews and their inconsistencies, we better be consistent in what we say and what we do. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much that, that you have provided us the opportunity to love people, to know people, to, to minister to people, to, to share the gospel with people. And God, thank you that you have given us minds that we can, we can have conversations with people that need to know you desperately, as, that need you as desperately as we do. Thank you, God, that you've given us the minds to understand the things of science and the things of this world and the, 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 the things of philosophy and all those things. God, thank you for those minds, but God, please, let us be consistent. Let us pe- be a people that go out in love, in power, and in might to share your grace, your love, and your fame and your glory with the entire world, God. Be with us today. Be with us tomorrow. Be with us for all eternity, God. Thank you that we call you our God and you call us your people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.